Welcome to or welcome back to the Journey Through Life podcast. I am Justin Barton and this is my show. We are back for some of the regular episodes of the Journey Through Life podcast after 13 weeks of the Journey in Recovery series. Now if you missed those episodes, there were some life-changing things shared by some amazing people in that series. Now to catch you up on what the uh, regular episodes of this podcast are like, it's all about ordinary people with extraordinary stories and allowing a space where people can reflect on our own lives and look inward to learn wisdom from the life lessons and experiences of the guests of this show. I also invite my awesome guests to share some of the things that are most important to them so that future generations can receive words of wisdom directly from those who lived their lives and experienced the world today. Today, we will be journeying with Lindsay Marlin, a woman that I had spoken to once for maybe 20 minutes before we had this call. And from that discussion, I felt the draw to ask her if she would be a guest on my podcast. And as you will hear, I don't think I was led astray in that thought. Her story is deep and meaningful and heartbreaking and hopeful. From the content of this conversation, I have chosen the, to name it Acceptance, Know Your Worth, A Journey Through Life with Lindsay Marlin. Now, I recorded this episode the day before Thanksgiving of 2019, so all of the craziness going on in the world today was not happening then, and we were just living life as what we perceived as normal at that time. But in this conversation, we talk about a lot of things that will be helpful to each of us who are living in this time of uncertainty, some of fear, some of you know, what's uh, going to happen as we are all quarantined with this uh, COVID-19. But anyways, if you have not already subscribed to the Journey Through Life podcast, go and do it right now for free in whatever podcast platform, platform you are hearing this on. That way, you can continue to reflect and learn from experiences of current, past, and future guests. And if you haven't already reviewed and rated this podcast... What in the world is holding you back? Please go take 30 seconds and give us a five-star rating and write a 10-word review. You can also like us on Facebook and Instagram. The handle is at JTL Podcast for both of them. Also, you can check out the website and nominate yourself or a loved one to be a future guest right here on this podcast there at www.jtlpod.com. Now... Please go and check out our sponsors after this episode, or right now. You can hit pause and go check them out right now. The first of our sponsors is www.alifeuntold.com, and use promo code JUSTIN at checkout to save 10% on a personalized and hardbound book of your personal history to be left as a legacy for those who come after you, or purchase it as a gift for a parent or a grandparent or somebody else who has had a great impact on your life that you would like to preserve their life story for. Once again, at checkout, use promo code JUSTIN, J-U-S-T-I-N, to save 10% on that order. Also, check out shepherdbrackets.com for awesome brackets to create your own open shelving concept in your kitchen, bathroom, office, or anywhere else you would like some stylish and high-quality floating shelves in your home. Use promo code JTLPOD5 to save 5% on all orders there. And then for high-quality, solid wood floating shelves that come fully prepared for and with a shepherd bracket, check out RadfordPinesHomeDecor.com. 
They have solid walnut, solid oak, solid maple, solid alder, solid poplar, and solid rustic pine with some amazing finishes. These are seriously high quality and beautiful shelves. Save 5% there at checkout with promo code JTLPOD5. Now let's jump right into this meaningful conversation with Lindsay Marlin and see just what the title, Acceptance, Know Your Worth, means. All right, I'm sitting here with Lindsay Marlin, uh, someone who I almost know nothing about. We met and talked on the phone a little while ago, and, and I thought, huh, I wonder if she would be willing to have one of these conversations with me. So, Lindsay, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you come from, and maybe a, a little hint or two about uh, that will help us get to know you a little bit better before we start going into some, some additional questions. Sure. So I am from Columbus, Ohio, but more specifically Upper Arlington, Ohio, which is sort of Norman Rockwell, USA. My boyfriend visited for the first time about three years ago, and that's what he called it. And I had never thought of it that way before, but then I realized he was right. It's a small suburb of Columbus. It butts right up against the Ohio State University campus. So childhood was really generally peaceful, happy, um, kid of the 80s, big fan of the 80s. So um, that's where I began. And ultimately, I found my way out here in Phoenix. Awesome. So what brought you to, to Phoenix? Well, it's kind of a roundabout sort of thing. Um, I have a BFA in dramatic performance. So I was a professional actor, still am, uh, for many years. And I found my way to Phoenix. Ultimately, I was living in New York. And at the time, a lot of my work was in the Southwest. So I was taking gigs in Santa Fe. I was taking gigs in Phoenix, Texas. So my sister ended up here with my brother-in-law. They had two children. And I thought, hmm, that's where the babies are. That's where all the work is. I'm going to go. And then my parents became snowbirds and sort of the rest is history. Awesome. So is it you and your sister and your family? Do you have any other siblings? Um, I just have my sister. Uh, she passed five years ago. Um, oh, but I'm so sorry. Um, I appreciate that. It's very kind. But as far as I'm concerned, I still have her. So when it comes to those verbs of a has or a had, I'm a has person with those kinds of things. Um, but yes, it was just the two of us. So tell me about you two growing up as sisters. What were some of the things, the trouble you got into or the fun things you did together? Well, my father used to coin this term for whenever we would goof off and it was baby and then this word that is S-H blank T. Uh And that's what we did all the time, according to him. Um, Uh It was all about trying to make each other laugh. And we were very good at that. He probably thought we weren't good at that at all, but we were (laughs) very, very good at that. So we got in a lot of trouble, but there was a lot of joy within that trouble. Um, And things were, I would argue, perfect. You know, um, every family has its issues from time to time, but we were a nice group of four, and then we had always a little white fluffy dog. Some sort of Maltese was always in the presence. This is currently the seventh, the one that I have, um, and he was my sister's dog. But in 1990, um, when I was 12 and my sister was 15, she was in a car accident, Mm. and um, she was in a coma for 12 days, and she had a traumatic brain injury. And that changed everything as it would. She um, also had a torn descending aorta of her heart, uh, many broken bones. It was a very strange thing to see because you go from this idyllic life and then it's like, wait a minute, what? What? My mother was a nurse 
I would argue she still is a nurse, but again, we're talking about verbs and my father is an attorney. So it was strangely enough, the perfect combination of parents for her to have under the circumstances that she was going through. But um, it, it changed everything for us from that point forward. So what did that look like? What did that change look like? I mean, obviously, this accident was obviously traumatic with all of those injuries and in a coma for 12 days. What was your sister like after um, the accident? Well, the way that I sort of tell the story is that the night of the accident, it was a Friday night and I was 12. Mm -hmm. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, she's still in the coma. On Monday, I turned 13. So, hey, welcome teenage years. It was just a very strange thing. And when she eventually woke up, she was extremely docile. So a lot of that was medication. But one thing that I (laughs) forgot to mention a bit as we were going through our baby SH blank T is that, um, you know, she would scratch me a lot. She was the bigger kid. So she would kind of beat me up from time to time. Um, So suddenly she was just insta docile. And Mm. I really didn't know who this person was. And it was very strange for me. When she came out of that, um, is that, was that her personality moving forward from there just very docile or in a way um i'm also a speech language pathologist as you know not at the time obviously i was 13 um but i would say that once someone has a traumatic brain injury depending upon where the injury is and it was frontal lobe for her Mm. that it's going to change various aspects of personality so with frontal lobe suddenly she became much more childlike and that continued forward into adulthood She, sadly, always made the wrong decision. Um, She sort of lost those problem-solving skills, those quality decision-making skills. So the docile part was in the beginning, but then things got a little more challenging as she became a little bit more aware of the things that she had lost. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, that has got to be a really tough um, thing to wake up in in your teenage years too, both for you, but also for her. How long did it take before she started to cognitively realize what happened and what changed? So I would argue, and now it's so long ago, but I think that she was in both the ICU and then the inpatient rehabilitation for probably a total of two months. Then it was the outpatient rehabilitation. I want to say, let's call it about a year, a year and a half when she returned to school and she at that point had tutors where she didn't need them before. And I would read a lot of her textbooks to her out loud because she needed that support versus reading herself. Mm. I think it was probably around then when she realized that she definitely wanted to graduate with her class, although all the adults were wanting her to sort of stay back, take her time. Mm-hmm. I think she knew then that things were different for her. And so she was sort of desperately trying to conform. Hmm. Interesting. And I, and I don't want to, or I don't need to, unless you want to dwell here and, and dig a little bit more in this, but um, I think there's probably some very formative things that happened because of that in your life. So tell me how your maybe perception of others and maybe your choice of profession kind of was dictated by these events here. It's funny, some years after it, and just to sort of go forward, um, because she, at that point, wasn't ever really making the right choice, there were a lot of bad choices made. And when bad choices are made, for instance, 
oh, I am going to be late, so I'm going to speed in my car. Oh, the cop is now chasing me. Well, I don't want him to stop me. I'll go faster. So Mm -hmm. nothing was malicious. It just wasn't reasoned well. So when you start making choices like that, suddenly the law becomes involved in your life, uh, maybe with more frequency than you ever wanted, definitely more frequency than my father as an attorney ever wanted for his daughter. Right, right. And then um, after the car accident, um, as time would pass, they think as a post-traumatic stress response, she developed anorexia and then bulimia. So she spent a great deal of her life either in hospitals or in jails, and it was very, very challenging. So for me... Looking back, I want to say maybe five years after it happened, so now I'm in high school, almost done, and I found an old journal from that time, and I'm not even sure if it was a journal. It was probably an assignment for school. I read the article, or the journal entry, and I was just angry, mad at my parents, mad at her, and I thought, this is obnoxious. What is this? And I realized that I had always been sort of the good child, like the the one who did the right thing because she would do the wrong thing prior to Mm. the accident. And then suddenly they needed to give more of their attention to her logically. And they also gave me attention. I'm being a big baby. But at the time I felt like everything had shifted as it had and as it should have. Right. I was an angry little girl. So I wish going back now that I had been an adult speech language pathologist at the time, because I would have been able to understand her and what she went through more as opposed to being a somewhat jealous sister. Yeah. So, so as you look back at that, those journal entries, can you think, can you recall any one of those specific instances or entries that, that really kind of sticks out in your mind? I'm not sure if I remember the specifics, but one thing that I do recall is that I suddenly became late for school all the time because my mom would leave early to go to either the ICU or the inpatient rehab. My father still had to see clients, but then he would go. So he wouldn't take me to school until he was ready to head to work. And I didn't fight that, obviously. I let everything happen as it did. But I know the front desk ladies weren't happy about that. And he sort of gave them a talking to one day about how she'll get here when she gets here. And that's that. And I just think that I felt a little different um, and didn't quite understand. As an adult now, I get it. You know, my dad didn't have time to go do this, that, the other. It. He needed to get to work. He needed to get to the hospital or inpatient rehab. So I get the choices they made. But at the time, little bratty kid. Mm -hmm. No, and and that's completely understandable as a 13, 14-year-old kid to all of a sudden have the total shifts of really everything happen um, to feel that way. I mean, I've got a couple of teenage daughters right now, and I I hope that type of situation never happens. But if it does, I can totally see how how those, you know, emotions and those changes of attitude could easily happen and be even justifiable, I guess I would say, you know? In a child world, yes. In an adult world, no. (laughs) I want to go there. So tell me a little bit. Now, have you had anything similar to that happen in your life since you're an adult? Maybe not, obviously not a sister or family member, but, you know, something where, a drastic change happened and you dealt with it a little bit differently than you did when you were a, uh, a teenager. Hmm. Well, when she passed, um, I uh, remember talking to <laughs> cry talking to my father at the funeral. Um, I have two nephews, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant boys. Um, mm. 
that despite uh, all the weaknesses in her body, she was able to have preemies who are just top of their game, senior and junior in high school. And I am grateful to God uh, incredibly for that. But I remember saying to my father that if these boys weren't here, that I would argue that I was still 12 slash 13 and this was the night of the accident or, you know. And so that was surreal because you're seeing the same flowers basically coming from the same people, different events, similar trauma. And yet we were all able to, and by all, uh, I basically mean my mother, my father and myself, to realize that after this journey of her life that had been so challenging, that although we weren't happy, obviously, that she is not here, that we finally could believe that she was in a place of perfect peace, something that she had always wanted, even as a child, but Mm. desperately wanted uh, after the accident and could not find. And so we find um, a peace in that, and there's something that is, is mature about that, And that makes me feel better because obviously I do think that part of the speech language pathology route was because of what happened to her. I also had some speech impediments as a child, so I knew a little bit more about it. But I think that we were able to approach it with a little more um, strength and maybe gravitas. Man, that's that's quite the 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 list of of events there that are all related to your sister, and you said she has two sons who were both in high school getting yeah almost done. Um, the eldest one, JT, just got a forty thousand dollars scholarship to ASU. We're uh, extremely proud, ecstatic, and <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And um, the youngest one's a junior, so he's got a little more time. No, that's really good. And and do you inter- are you able to interact with them regularly at this point? Definitely, I was living in Ohio when she passed. Um, I, I had been here and then I went back to Ohio for grad school for speech language pathology. And then um, I moved back like, within weeks. Of yeah. her passing. They had, they lived with my uh, brother-in-law. He had full custody of for quite a while, but I, I knew that I needed to be here in some way, surely to help my parents with all the initial type post death preparations, if you will, but um, right. for the boys in whatever way they needed. And I'm very, very grateful that I was here and uh, we've all grown in a different way. And that's a good thing. So you're, you're Auntie Lindsay and, mm-hmm. and... Well, I'm actually Lala <laughs> because, because my mother is 100% Slovak. And oh. so they say Baba and Zeto as grandma and grandpa. And so as JT was growing up, he had mama or dada. Uh, Bubba Zetto and I was like, well, I I want like a two syllable easy name. I don't. He's not going to say Lindsay like tomorrow. So right. I would always uh, see him. And at first, when he was born, I was living in New York, but I would come pretty frequently to Arizona. So I would be like La 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 <laughs> La. And he wasn't picking it up at first, but God bless him. I came back for one trip, and they had him on the bed, and he looked at me, and he just went La La. And I was like, score, sold, it's done. He's gotten it. So what what a simultaneous victory and heart melt, you know? And they still call me that, which is totally fine. Um, They don't find it odd. Uh, Their peers don't find it odd. If they call me that till the end, I am okay with that. And that's awesome. That's a great term of endearment for you. And Aunt Lindsay takes way too long to say. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned that your mother is 100% Slovak, Slovakian. Did she 
immigrate or did her parents or, or how did that tell me about that uh, family history story? Um, Bubba was born here, my Bubba. So my mom's grandparents came over. Oh, okay. Yeah. But that naming, carrying those, those family names over has lasted a few generations. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's pretty good. A lot of times that goes after a generation or two, but it looks like you're carrying it over for generation after generation. So what does that mean to you to have that heritage of, you know, North Central European heritage like that? Well, I think what I recall of it is that uh, my mom is from Toronto, Ohio, which is a very, very small town north of Steubenville, Ohio, which of course has been a dramatic in the news type of place recently. But um, when we used to go up there for the holidays, everyone went to church. We all um, like eat the same Easter foods, which I know come from the whole Slovakian type world. I think there's some Russian Orthodox influence in there too, because I've seen people eat some of those same kind of foods. And we still do that. My mom carries forth those recipes. Um, It's just, she has a a sister and a brother. I think my aunt does as well, um, some of those recipes, but it's just a huge part of what our life is and always has been. So it's nice, those little traditions. Um, and the food's good, so that's good too. <laughs> Absolutely. I love, I, I don't know if I love Slovakian food, but I love Eastern European food as a whole. I just think it's so delicious. So, My mom makes a mean cabbage roll. It is just mm. too good. Too good. I love, well, the Romanian, so, so I lived in Romania for two years. Oh. The, the Romanian word for those cabbage rolls is sarmale, and I love sarmale. So. <laughs> awesome. So, um... As you have progressed through your life, you are now a speech language pathologist in addition to the other things that we've talked uh, that, that you referenced earlier. And you talked about some of the reasons you did that as you had a speech impediment and also your sister's you know, situation there uh, being influential in that. When did you finally decide, hey, I'm going to do this? And h- how did you go about doing that? So um, I'm also a professional actor, and I got my BFA in dramatic performance back in 2002. So I lived in New York. I was performing for a long time. Part of the speech-language pathology thing happened because in 08, the economy tanked and took a lot of my voiceover work away with it. So that was Mm -hmm. sort of a shock. Um, But also, I ended up screaming on a film set, and something was wrong with my voice. I ended up going to more of a voice pathologist, speech language pathologist, and she gave me worksheets, practice sheets, that I already had. They were part of some of my actor training type things um, because we take vocal production. So I thought, huh, wait a minute, these things are connected, which seems logical, voice, Mm -hmm. acting, speech, it it seems logical. Right. So everything just kind of came together and it just sort of made sense. And there was a program at Ohio State. And if I lived in my parents' house, God bless them for letting me do that. I could get to my seat on West Campus in 25 minutes and that was ideal. (laughs) So That's awesome. So you're an alum of the Ohio State University. Indeed, the Ohio State University. Yes, yes. Awesome. So what took you to to acting before that? What what was kind of the motivation to that and the experiences you had that took you there before the speech-language pathology? Well, I would say both my mom and my dad. they're incredibly influential to me. And I realize that there are some families where people just hate calling the parents and I've met some of those people. And I don't get that because now I text my mother multiple times per day. (laughs) It's probably a little obnoxious. They probably think I'm nuts, not my parents, but all the (laughs) friends of mine that aren't so close to their parents. 
my mother is a singer, beautiful voice. She used to sing for weddings. Mm. And um, she was part of a variety show in Columbus that was called Vaudevillities. Still mm. exists. She was in it for 25 years. At the time when I was probably anywhere from six to 10, it was like this incredibly popular thing. They would rent out the Veterans Memorial that they since torn down, but it was a humongous space. They would fill it. They would run it for a week and they would rehearse for months because they would have these glee groups like women's and men's. They would have dancers. They would have comedy. And everyone in town either knew someone in it or wanted to be a part of it. So mm -hmm. my mother would take me to rehearsal and I would get my homework done early so I could go. And perhaps she did that just so that I wouldn't fight with my sister or to give my dad a bit of a break. I don't know. But in the beginning, I would be riding with her and her friends. So it was nice to see them socializing and just being a part of that, feeling like, you know, you're a big girl, whatever. And then uh, I would sit next to her and sight read and learn the music with her, which was great. If I got bored, uh, we rehearsed in this church. I could go explore, and I loved just opening up random doors that I probably shouldn't be walking through, but they were unlocked, so it's okay, you know, whatever. And when the rehearsal then moved to dress rehearsal at the Veterans Memorial, it was this amazing thing. Like, I could be in the dressing room, mm. then there was a separate makeup area, the green room, um, and I got to go up to the balcony and then watch the dress rehearsals. At that point, I knew all the songs, so I would just quietly sing to myself up there. Then when the show opened, you know, I could you know, poke my dad and be like, this is coming up next, or you're really going to like this one or whatever. <laughs> so I was just exposed to it. And from that, they then let us take acting classes and singing lessons and all of that. But my dad, being a litigator, I recall one time very early on now, I mean, he's, he's brilliant at what he does. So I don't think he needs to rehearse like maybe once he did when we were very young. But I was fascinated by two things at the time. Uh, his tie, like how on earth does that work? How are you making that crazy knot? I don't understand. And just basically sort of anything he did. I always saw my father as someone who got things done. And as a little kid, or as an adult, in my love of to-do lists, obviously I was just enthralled by his ability to get things done. So I recall once that his door was cracked open to his bedroom, and I kind of peeked in. I was maybe four or five. And um, he was tying his tie. And again, I mean, you have to flick up that collar. Like the whole thing is just mystifying to me still. And he's talking to himself in the mirror. I'm thinking like, what is he saying? So I'm listening. Probably shouldn't be eavesdropping. It's not kind. But I later realized that it was some sort of legal stuff. And so he was rehearsing. So there's my dad. And litigators, in a way, are sort of like actors. They have to convince their audience. They have to convince the jury. So... I guess just one thing led to another and it all just made sense that I would mm. have some skills in these areas and be supported by both of my parents and going forth toward my dreams. Well, that's really neat. So were you in like high school productions or anything Indeed. like that before? Yeah, tons of them. Yes. And there also was a local company called the Imaginating Dramatics Company. The woman who ran that, she passed recently, Mrs. Elliott, God bless her. Mm. She was also in that vaudevillities with my mother. Smart lady, because she realized that all the kids of all those people in vaudevillities would want to perform. And so she started a company for the kids. Oh, yeah, that is a smart idea. Mm -hmm, definitely. And she ran that for many years. Yeah. So as you look back at your career in acting and theater, is there a part that you've played that has had a, an effect on who you are today? I would argue that you always, always learn from every character you play. But if I have to pick one... And I got to play her twice because I did two different runs of the show. Um, there's a play called The Laramie Project. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mm -hmm. I'm Moises Kaufman and the Tectonic Theater Project. 
back in, I believe it was 1998. That sounds about right, because I was um, in undergrad. A boy named Matthew Shepard, who uh, was gay. Um, I try not to cry because it still triggers me because it's horrific. Um, in uh, Laramie, Wyoming was tied to a, a fence, um, a wiry fence, um, like, um, oh, you can envision like what those fences are. Sure, thanks. And um, he was uh, beaten to death by two men um, because he was gay. Mm. And after this occurred, uh, Moises Coffin and the Tectonic Theater Project went to Laramie and they interviewed anyone who wanted to speak about Matthew, about this experience, because what they found in Laramie is that there were some people who obviously um, were supportive of Matthew's lifestyle mm -hmm. and there were others who were not. And they put these actual quotes from these actual people, you know, actual names of these characters are the people who chose mm. to be interviewed into this, this gorgeous play. And so when you're in it, it's usually a cast of say seven or eight um, and all the roles are multicast. And each time that I got to play, I played some different tracks of characters, but I always played um, Reggie Flutie, who's the actual police woman who found him. Mm. And it ends act one, I believe, because it's been a while since I've read it, where she is giving the speech that she would have given in court when those two boys were uh, at trial. Mm -hmm. And um, she's describing the scene. Of course, it's horrific. And you have to, as the character, realize you are a policewoman. So there's a strength that you have to have and you need to obviously um, relay this information. There is a bit in the script, and again, it's all verbatim from these actual people, right. where she's talking about the scenario. There's a dash hyphen, and it says, I believe it's excuse me, or I'm so sorry, I can't remember. And then another dash, and then she keeps going. So you mm. know at that moment, that's where she breaks. And it was such a powerful thing, because obviously at this point I was an adult and I had been through the trauma of my sister's accident, different circumstances, obviously um, right. beaten up by a car, not by humans, um, not a hate crime for my sister, hate crime for Matthew Shepard. But that's when you tap into who you are as a person, because my training was always inside out, not mm. outside in, although both forms of training are fine. And you realize that to walk in another's shoes is not only a powerful and incredible gift as just a human, right? Mm. Empathy is this incredible thing that we have the power to possess and to understand another. But when you can do that on stage as well, then not only do you change your fellow actors, but you change the audience. And mm. theater for me matters because you have the opportunity and usually a two hour stretch of time to change someone's life for the better. If that's bringing them joy, if that's making them aware, if that's making them somehow become a better person because they see the circumstances that someone else went through that was just horrific, you're making a difference. Your empathy is making a difference. So I think that it's very powerful and it made me realize even more so how important empathy is, how important it is to walk in someone's shoes. And mm. kind of going back to my sister, I so wish I could have walked in her shoes in a better way as a younger person. And I've forgiven myself for that because I firmly believe that heaven is a place of perfect peace. There's no need for forgiveness because nobody does anything wrong. And so she forgives me by default. And so I can forgive myself too. And, and there is youth and you have to forgive yourself for that. 
But if anything, that role in um, the Laramie Project just deepened my empathy for everyone. I love how you described that the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes or even a practice that I that I do right now as I as I read different things I used to always put myself in the hero's shoes and say you know I'm the good guy I'm always the good guy and yeah that's great to do that but now I put myself in the bad guy's shoes and try and see where is this guy where is this guy or this woman or this whatever coming from and not to understand or say, hey, I sympathize or empathize with you, but to say, I have been there in that guy's shoes, and I don't want to make choices that make me that guy. And it's been super powerful. I don't, I'm, I'm assuming that might be some practice of, <laughs> that you would do as an actor, but you know, I've never looked at it that way. Have you ever played the part of a bad guy that has really opened your eyes to to, to something like that. Oh yeah, um, as you can tell, my voice is a little lower. So more often than not, I, I am the the bad guy. Usually, oh. there's a turnaround in the end of the the script, which is really nice. But it's just kind of where I get typed, and that's okay. There's a great joy in playing the bad guy because the bad guy doesn't think the bad guy's bad, right? The, right. No, right. I mean, you love your character. That's the whole point because the character is you. You need to love the character. If you hate the character, you have no right playing that character. You can't do justice to it. And then you Mm. can't affect the audience in the way they need to be affected. So Mm. there's always something that's good about that person. They believe, right? Right. I'm sure that all these people that do various crimes feel like they're justified in the doing of them. Society disagrees. However, those people feel as if they're justified. Um, So for me just kind of segueing here, there's a book called A Course in Miracles, and they say that every action is either love or a call for love. So whereas the good guy is probably always just loving, 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 mm-hmm. the bad guy is crying out for it. And usually if we think about people who do horrible things, usually horrible things have been done to them. No mm-hmm. excuse. You need to make a change. Like that, that is not your cop-out, you know, way out of everything. But um, the bad guys, we have to find the good in them in order to play them. And usually if it's a good script, they turn good by the end. Hmm. There's a resolution that is positive. Very interesting. How do you see others in real life now who may be really struggling with things based on your experiences of putting yourself in the shoes of the bad guy and become loving that person in, in theater and also in your experiences of watching and, and interacting with your sister and seeing that whole thing go on in their life. How do you see somebody who is the person that's calling out for love, but most of society, either they're invisible to most of society or most of society turns their back on them? Well, I would love to say that I am so evolved <laughs> that I always can see those calls for love, but I can't. And just like any regular person, Um, If someone ticks me off, I'm going to get PO'd at first. Then after sort of getting through my, you know, anger or just, Mm -hmm. you know, tension, then I can look at it with different eyes and remind myself, okay, breathe. No one is out to get you. No one is coming at you with malice. What's going on with them? Can you support them? You ask them how you can support them. What can you do? How can you see it as a call for love? And then accept that person where they are. 
and acceptance is challenging, but um, it's a daily practice, I feel, to see the calls for love and try to give love to the people who are hard to love. Mm. It just, it doesn't come naturally, maybe to some people, and those people are the most awesome people in the world. Right, <laughs> right. For me, not always naturally. Sometimes automatic, not always. That would be a lie if I said it was always. Right. No. And, and I appreciate that. That's really cool. I want to go back to something that I'm pretty sure I heard you say earlier in the conversation. If I'm wrong, we'll just move past that. But you said <laughs> that you are a, what I think I remember you saying is that you are a big proponent of to-do lists. Is that something, did you say that? <laughs> I love a good to-do list. I love crossing things off of to-do lists. I love killing things off of my inbox. Awesome. So, so where do you think that comes from? Do you think that's something that you just were born with of this desire to organize things and then check them off? Or do you think it's something you learned from, from experiences? I would say my parents, um, my mother is still a list maker. Uh, there's a little magnet list on the fridge and she has beautiful writing. My grandmother used to always compliment my mother's penmanship. My grandmother had beautiful penmanship. She hated my penmanship and she didn't understand why I wasn't doing better in penmanship classes. We never had penmanship classes, but God bless her. I love my Bubba very much. She she lived to 101. Wow. Anyway, sidebar. Um, My father, also a list maker, I recall um, they used to throw these Christmas parties every year. They snowbird now, so they come out to Phoenix, but um, just these awesome parties. And at first, uh, my sister and I were too young. So we would stay upstairs with my Bubba and watch, uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then as we got older, we got to be the coat check girls. Like we had like little important jobs to do. And, um, my father would have, you know, the list of all the people. He would have the list of all the food. Um, he makes a mean punch. He would have a list of all the punch ingredients. And it was always fun uh, as a little kid to sort of be around his desk and look at his lists. Ah. Also because he has really bad penmanship. And (laughs) if you could decipher any of it, uh, that was really cool too. So I think just being exposed to those things. Then as a speech language pathologist, uh, and I've worked with kids and adults, obviously we're a big proponent of any sort of list that will help um, the aging brain. So we're all about those lists. Yeah. So what, what does a typical daily list for Lindsay look like? Well, I mean, I have my agenda and I work with high schoolers currently and those high schoolers, I'll ask them about their agendas. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, how do you know when things are due? Oh, I memorize it. What? And then of course those things don't get turned in. So um, I have to constantly explain to them, guys, I have the computer agenda. It's right there. It tells me when the meetings are. There's my actual handwritten one in calendar form with boxes right there in my backpack that I take. There's my personal one. The same things are in all three calendars. How do you not have an agenda? I just think that there's too many things going on and I wear a lot of different hats. So if you aren't keeping track, you're going to fail. And I'm not a big fan of failing. So I try to do my best. Let, let's talk about that for just a minute. Tell me a time when you failed that you, that <laughs> you uh, are willing to talk about that has been, uh, turned out to be maybe a positive thing in your life. Oh, man. It's a rough call because as an actor, you're rejected a lot for roles. So you can Mm -hmm. call those failures. But if you do that, you'll lose any confidence that you have and you need to have some semblance of confidence or you won't put yourself out there again. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I guess recently there was one that I really felt like the audition was the best that I could have done in my opinion. It didn't turn out to be what I wanted ultimately. 
And so I beat myself up a little bit and then I had to step back and be like, okay, you did the best that you could do. You firmly believe that you gave your all in that audition. You gave your all to the prep of that character. You gave everything that you could give. And at the end of the day, there are so many factors that go into casting. What you look like, what you sound like, how your body moves. If the person that's playing opposite you and it's a love interest is too tall and you're too short. If mm. he's you know, too broad-shouldered and you are not comparable to that in their mind, right? And there are mm -hmm. so many people who need pleased. As a younger actor, I mean, you would just self-dagger, right? Just self-flagellation. I'm bad, I'm bad, whatever. And that just doesn't work. It, that's not sustainable. With even any profession, the self-flagellation isn't sustainable. And you have to remember your worth. I'm a big fan of that because I feel like I really didn't tap into that or understand what it was until, oh man, late 30s yesterday. I don't know, but I mean, and I'm now 42. So, you know, it's not yesterday, but, um, right. you have to know your worth and society is hell bent on taking it away from you. And I don't know why that is, be it the magazines or be it the things you see on TV. If you know your worth and you know that your worth is inherent because you're a child of God or whatever you want to name your higher power, then you're okay then you just, you are the calm in the storm and you go through life. But without that, oh my, oh my, you are just tossed by the waves. So I think that for me, I was able to step back from that sort of recent-ish role that didn't come my way and just say, I gave a really fine audition. And that's our job at the end of the day. Our job is really not to have a gig, it's to audition. Mm. Because when you audition, that role is yours, maybe for two minutes, but it's yours. And if you show them that it's yours, then sometimes they agree with that based on all those other factors they're trying to fit you into those boxes. But it's all about the worth. And even though I, I was raised Catholic and all of that, I don't feel like I had a great grasp of that. And that's not my parents' fault. That's not God's fault. I just mm -hmm. didn't quite understand it. I, I look at my mother, who is this woman who I'm just in awe of. She has been accused of wearing her rosy colored glasses all the time, but you know, good for her because that's really helped her to shine a light through her life. And um, she embodies worth to me. Mm. So maybe she couldn't recognize so much that maybe both of her daughters didn't have the highest self-esteem because we were very confident, both of her yeah. daughters, but sometimes the inside stuff isn't showing. It's just in there festering. And my dad, you know, I mean, strong, confident. Uh, he had a very rough childhood growing up. He could have become his father. God bless him. He did not. He became mm. someone else who I am honored to call my father and adores my mother. So they didn't really have issues with worth. Mm. But somehow my sister and I may be trying to please them, even though they didn't need us to do that, maybe trying to please God because God bless the Catholic church. But I feel like some of what we learned or what we took from it was that maybe we weren't quite good enough. I don't know, maybe it's changed over the years, but that's what we took from it. Um, but over the years, as I finally tapped into worth, the failing doesn't hurt so much because you see it as just a feedback. And that's not my quote that comes from someone else. They see failure as feedback as opposed to this horrible thing called failure.
Hmm. So you mentioned that uh, this this concept of worth is something that you kind of grasped finally in your late 30s. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the instance where, where that light kind of came on where, you know what? I'm worth this and, and this is real to me now and it's no longer, I'm just saying it to, to please somebody else. I'm just saying these words, these words actually mean something now. It came around the time of her death because I was in um, Ohio and I was in a relationship that I knew was not going to go towards marriage, which is something that I wanted. Um, he had made that clear. So I was now trying to plan my escape. <laughs> right. God bless him. But I was trying to plan my escape. And I recall the morning that we found out that she had passed. And I was grumpy that morning, didn't quite know why, but just felt heavy. Now I would argue, did I feel the energy of, of, of what was occurring you know, in Arizona? I don't know. But after hearing that... I stayed up all night because I had this weird thing where I feel like if trauma happens, if I just stay up all night, then maybe it didn't happen because the day didn't end. So it's, it's nutty, but yeah. it's a way of trying to convince yourself of something it doesn't quite work. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was finally going to bed in the morning, I, I, had, I posted something on, on Facebook before I had gone to bed about what had occurred. And one of my friends called um, and she obviously expressed her condolences. And then she said, so you're moving back there, right? And I didn't even have to think. I was like, oh yeah, it just came out of me. And I thought, that's interesting. Like I could have left that relationship at any point. It wasn't the right answer. I knew that, but you know, oh, maybe he'll change his mind. We'll get married. You know, all that nonsense that women do. I, I, it's hard. It's hard for us, you know, but uh, and maybe men too, <laughs> but I'm not one of those. So I don't know. But that moment, I think, when I just answered and knew where I had to be, and it was with my nephews, it was with those boys, that whatever it was, maybe it was Courtney, maybe it was, that's my sister, maybe it was her energy coming in um, and just saying, no, you are worthy of a healthy relationship when the time comes, the right relationship when the time comes. You are worthy of being there for my boys. You are worthy of being there for everyone in whatever way they need you out there, go. And I think it was then, because as I started to delve more into myself and whatnot after her passing, I realized that she and I were more alike than I cared to admit at any time. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I love her to death, I do, um, and beyond. And um, I realized then, and in a way we both had some low self-esteem going on, And I realized that maybe in a strange way, because the traumatic brain injury, one could call it a family illness in the way it affects the whole family, like how alcoholism can affect the whole family and other conditions, cancers can affect the whole family. That because how does a 15 year old, my sister at the time of the accident, have any idea what her identity is, right? She thinks what it is, she was a performer too, then it's all gone. You know, she had an endotrach tube. She couldn't sing um, the way that she used to. So now it's all gone. Mm-hmm. So now who do you become? Shaky identity. And I think for me, seeing that, maybe there was, obviously there was some commiseration, but is it possible that together, obviously her situation much worse than what I was experiencing on the sidelines. Right. But did we both just not quite grow up learning all the things that we needed to because of that early trauma. And again, her circumstance is so much worse than mine. Hmm. 
Right. No, and I think that's some good insights there because if we go around comparing our own trauma or lack of trauma to somebody else's, um, we're always going to feel either insufficient or like a victim, like mine's so much worse than yours. So how Mm -hmm. could you dare, you know, even compare yourself? Those experiences we have that have those effects, positive and negative in our lives are meaningful to us, you know? Um, And they, they make those changes positive or negative for each of us. And it, and I think what you, what you shared there about I'm worthy to do whatever it is that I'm needed to do. I think that's something, I think that's one of those awakening moments in our, in our lives where um, it's no longer about trying to do what mom and dad want me to do, for example, or what the popular kids in high school wanted me to do or whatever, you know, it's, it's now about what I feel is right for me to do. And that's, man, I'm, I I was about the same age as you. when I had that realization of, Hmm, "Hmm." I was in my late thirties and I was like, "Hmm, you know, what I'm doing isn't working, but my value, my worth is still there. So what do I, what can I do to um, accept that worth? that I have that I know is there that I'm not accepting. I'm, I'm turning my back on it by whatever I'm doing, you know? So I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, it does, it does yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So what other words of wisdom, what life experiences have you had that you feel is, is important to share right now? Hmm. I think that family is the most important thing. And I think if you don't like your family, your biological family or whatever the issues are there, go find another one, be it your friends, be it whatever, um, that especially you know, tis the season tomorrow being Thanksgiving. Yeah. I adore my family. And yes, of course, we've had some nasty moments. You know, there were moments I recall where, you know, I was having a swearing match with my dad, you know, in those teenage years, you know, those things that, um, you know, you're not proud of, but they, they occurred. I wouldn't change them at all, the weird, the bad, the ugly, at all, because they've helped to shine lights for me. They've helped to shine lights for my nephews. Um, And I just think they're perfect in all their imperfectness, you know? The joy of knowing that you had so much history with someone brings me just to a place I can't even explain. I have my best friend who uh, grew up on my street. She currently lives in Germany. She just had a baby. Uh, We met in first grade, so we've been best friends for 30-odd years now. My other really close friends uh, became my good friends in seventh grade, so we're pushing our 25th reunion this uh, summer. (laughs) And yes, of course, new friends are great too, right? But these old friends, and we can pick up right where we left off, and with family, no time passes at all even if they're in Ohio, wherever they are, that fills me with such a calm and just a solid base that I just, I don't even know what to say. I think family is just an amazing thing. Hmm. No, I love that. And uh, so as you look at, I'm, I'm going to kind of go back to a question that if I, if I ask this question, I typically do it at the beginning, but I think this is a good spot to do it. As you look at your extended family, grandparents, uncles, aunts, whatever, who is somebody that has had a lasting effect on you from your extended family? Hmm. My grandmother, my Baba, uh, my mom's mom, she, 
she's an angel. She's a saint. And my mother is too. And she just, she would give and give and give to us like, like she was a bottomless pit of giving. And it's, I don't even understand how she would have the energy, especially when we were little. I would go to her house in Toronto, Ohio in the summer sometime if I would just uh, get away from my parents for a little bit. And we would walk down to the little convenient mart at the end of her street and get like a roasted chicken. And it was always really good. And then across the street with a little ice cream shop and get Mm. some ice cream. And Mm -hmm. she just, she made me feel like I was the most important human being in the universe. Mm. And I, I hope that I make my nephews feel that way too, because I just think that that, that's just so powerful. And I feel like maybe as a child with all of that, I felt worth. Then you go through all those teenage years and everything's just a mess. And right. then it's coming back again. But they definitely, at least in the beginning, you know, worked so hard um, to try to just build me up. I think. Hmm. Well, that's really neat. I love hearing stories of those people who, you know, helped us as kids. And, you know, obviously our parents, for almost everybody, our parents are there to lift us and help us. And, and, but when you have extended family that really reinforce that and, and accentuate that, it's just a huge blessing to have in our lives. Let's put ourselves out 50 to 80 years from now. And you've got uh, progenitors sitting around talking about old family members and everything. And, and, and they say, well, tell me, what about Lala? What does she have to share with me? What, what were some things that were most important to her? Is there anything that we haven't already talked about that maybe you'd like to share with those people? Because this is digital. It's going to be around forever, we hope. <laughs> I think that you have to find out what it is that you really want in life from a career standpoint, from a relationship standpoint, from a spirituality standpoint, from any standpoint, and really go for that thing. And I know that sounds so easy. I'm just going to go for it. It's really hard. It's really hard to go for those things, right? There are obstacles in your path. You might be nervous about that, even though you want it. There are limiting beliefs that are holding you back, whatever it may be. I think at this age, I'm beginning to realize because time is going even faster. And I trust that it goes even faster as I get even older. Mm. And then I found a long white hair yesterday, whereas before I just found a tiny one in my my bangs. So I'm like, what is happening? Then I'm, which is funny that I'm now being, you know, spurred forward by my hair, but that's okay. (laughs) That if you don't go for those things in every avenue, you'll lose them. You'll lose, you'll, you'll lose them. And I think that I'm realizing that more and more. So it's time and I've been spending time tapping into, okay, spirituality. What is it that I want for my legacy? What more in my hopefully 60-ish years, you know, with my, <laughs> my Bubba's genes, right? Right. What is it that I want spiritually? What is it that I want from my career? What is it that I want from my relationship? If I'm not proposed to soon, hello, like, you know, time is <laughs> running out. So therefore, if I'm going to have a child with a husband, need a husband, you know, right? All these little moving pieces, right? And right. Everyone's on their own journey and it's okay if they're not on yours, but you have to be on yours. Hmm. You have to be on yours, not somebody else's, yours. And it's very easy, I think, growing up and even in your 30s to not know what your journey is or to want to people please others on your journey so that that journey is the best journey for everybody else, Hmm. probably not you. But oh, they're proud of you. 
because you went and got this degree. That feels good, but you're still dying on the inside because you're not really doing what you want. And yes, sometimes, you know, a theatrical career is challenging. You aren't always going to get what you want. You can't just go up through the ranks. You are going to get cast or not. Yes, you can keep training, but you're either going to get cast or not. So that's a different beast. But you have to be on your own journey. Everyone else, great opinions. Oh, they have such great opinions. But you have to be on your own path. I like that. Be present on your own journey. I I love that uh, that thought. Um, because so much of life, if if I'm not careful, so much of my life can be pleasing others. And then my sure. journey, my path is is dictated by other people at that point. And don't get me wrong. Pleasing others is important. Being kind to others is important. But when it gets to that point where everything you're doing is just to make someone else proud of you, you're looking for your worth outside of yourself. Yeah. And you have to find it within. I like that. So you mentioned... I'm going off of a picture that's over your shoulder. Uh, you got to have faith. Oh, yeah, you can see things. Good eyes. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned also, you know, I'm trying to figure out my spiritual journey. What does that look like? So, so tell me about your faith and spiritual journey. What, what does that, what, where, where is that taking you at this point in your life? So I've always known that word as this religious word. It, uh, like I said, I grew up Catholic. It's a religious word. So faith means, you know, go to church follow God's credos, whatnot. Right. I think it was when she died. In fact, I'm sure it was when she died that I didn't understand that word, which was funny because I get the word. I mean, it's an English word. I understand it, but I didn't quite get it. When she died, I was angry that my faith, my religious faith wasn't supporting me because I was God. I was mad at her. I was mad at all sorts of different feelings, which are typical for grief, but still. Mm -hmm. Right. So I started to really think about this word and tap into this word. And yes, it's a religious word, but it doesn't have to be a religious word. It can be a word that is merely, you have to have faith, a belief that good is always around the corner, that something good is always on its way. It's really easy when life is perfect and sunshine and rainbows to have faith. That's so easy. More good will come because I'm just swimming in it right now. It is harder to believe that this too shall pass and that good will come again. So it's not necessarily up there for me as a religious thing. It can be, but I really have it up there because I have to remind myself all the time that when things go wrong, sometimes there's a right, right? There's always a silver lining. And referencing my sister again, like at the beginning of our talk, I hate that she's not here. It mm-hmm. rips my heart out. And I believe that she can see my nephews and be proud of them and send them that love and that light energy. Mm-hmm. But she, and I said this, I remember a bit in her eulogy, was that society does not know how to deal with a 15-year-old, 40-year-old. She was 40 when she died. She was 15 at the time of the accident, and that's where her cognitive functioning always stayed. She is now in a place of perfect peace with, I believe, probably whatever most powerful brain she can have in the heaven world, which is probably anything that you want. Right. That brings me joy. Do I wish she could have had that here? Do I wish? Of course. And I wish... And I tried to shove her. I was like, look, if you can heal the anorexia and the bulimia, 
You can go on the talk circuit. Like you can be a motivational speaker. This would be awesome. That will bring back your theatrical stuff. Mm -hmm. I remember I gave her a copy of the book, The Secret. And when we went into her apartment after all was said and done and we're moving things out, that book was untouched. That book, I mean, that spine was as, you know, well-constructed. No one had opened up that book. And I just cried more because I just so had tried to force her into a journey that wasn't hers. Yeah. And imbue worth into someone who maybe couldn't quite grasp that Mm. because of her level of cognitive functioning. So yeah, faith that things will, there is a silver lining somewhere. And I love how you brought that back to the journey. Um, Even when I know that my way is going to bring the person more happiness or more fulfillment or whatever. If I'm trying to force that on them, that's not their journey. No, no. That's a powerful lesson to learn. Um, A person can change their journey on their own accord. They can say, Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm going to make this change in this path because I see that my path that I've carved out for myself is not going where I want to go in the end. But if somebody else is doing that for me, it's not as helpful. No. And I spent a lot of time in Al-Anon. Um, I mm. originally found it because I was dating someone who was alcoholic. And I, I remember that I was just like, why am I here to be here? I could just break up with this person. You know, this isn't my sibling or my parent or whatever. Yeah. I got out of it and broke up with the person. And then I realized that the same concepts apply to the traumatic brain injury. Like we talked about alcoholism being a family illness and traumatic Mm -hmm. brain injury being a family illness. And you can't force someone to stop drinking. It doesn't work. You have to have acceptance. You can't force someone's traumatic brain injury to miraculously heal. It doesn't work that way. And her level of functioning was never so low that she could have someone else take charge of her. Uh, you know, affairs. Uh, to a certain extent, my parents right. were in charge of her affairs, but uh, it was never so low that right. that would have to be the case. And so acceptance is, is huge. Um, sidebar, I uh, wrote a play, a one-woman show called mm. Acceptance, about my <laughs> life with my sister. I performed it at the Tucson French Festival last year. And um, that's a hard word and it's a hard concept. And yet it's so essential to, again, our everyday functioning. You have to accept what's happening. You have to accept how you're happening that day, right? Are you mm. happy? Are you sad? And then it's your responsibility to change it so you can get out the door and go to work. Right. It's your responsibility to accept what happened to you because if you fight against the bad traffic all day long, you've ruined your day, everyone else's day. Being an adult is hard work. <laughs> and and what did you change if you're mad at the traffic all day? What did you change? Nothing. Nothing. No. You vented a lot. Maybe that feels good, but in the end, you're doing something to your insides that could be bad later. Right. Uh, super cool. I think there's some really good takeaways here that, uh, well, they're causing me to think, and I appreciate <laughs> that, and I think they'll cause others to think. Any other words of wisdom you want to share before we close this up? Mm. So just listening to my intuition there for a moment, which I believe is that still small voice within, and I believe that's God, or insert higher power here, um, that just remember that you are you, and that's all that really matters, is that you are you. So you honor that truth of you and honor that light of you. I like that. 
Awesome. Well, Lindsay, this has been fun. I yeah. really appreciate your time and your willingness to have this communication. It's been meaningful to me. I hope it's been meaningful. I had a you. lovely time. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it. Acceptance. Know your worth. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Now, I enjoyed this conversation so much that she and I have agreed, at her suggestion, to have her interview me for my podcast so that you, the listener, can get a little of what makes me tick and hear my own journey through life. We will be recording that in the next few weeks and put it out in a month or so, maybe within the next two months. Now, I have to be honest, I'm a bit scared about doing this. I'm now feeling what so many of my guests have stated before our conversations, that they're a little afraid of what is to come. Well, (laughs) now I get to really learn what that fear is all about and maybe put myself in the shoes of my guests. Once again, please rate and review and subscribe to the Journey Through Life podcast and check out our sponsors that can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and have a fantastic journey this week. (music) 